Hey friends, welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. If you're a regular listener of this show, you're probably wondering right now whose voice this is. My name is Noah and I'm the podcast editor and the producer. Tim asked me to jump on this week and to do the introduction for this episode while he spends a little bit of extra time with his wife. They're about to have a baby right now and I'm super excited to see pictures. The episode we have for you today is a really incredible conversation that Tim did with Mako Nagasawa. He's the creator of the Anastasis Center for Christian Thought and Ministry and he's an advocate for restorative justice and a healing or medicinal understanding of the atonement. The whole conversation on this episode about how our views of atonement and justice and the concepts that wrap around them completely shape the way that we view what it means to follow Jesus on a day-to-day basis is fascinating. I learned so much from this episode. I think I need to go back and listen to it two or three more times just to process all of the information that's in here. I can't wait for you to hear this. I'm just, I'm loving it. Friends, if you want to support the work that the New Evangelicals is doing, a really simple thing you can do is to leave a review or a rating for this show in one of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, if you want to support us financially, there's a link in the show notes below where you can do that. There is nothing the New Evangelicals do that is behind a paywall. We make everything that we create accessible and free to anybody that wants access to it. So all of our Zoom discussion groups, our book studies, our podcast, our community map, everything that we do is accessible to anyone. And the way that this work is possible is through the New Evangelicals community's support of this work that we do. So again, if you want to check out that link and you want to see what it could look like to maybe support us, we'd really appreciate it. Friends, I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. It's an amazing conversation and it's been great getting to meet you. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Well, I'm very excited for this. Um, on the, the, the on the zooms, you know, on on the podcast, I have Mako Nagasawa. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Why don't we start here? You know, we're really big um, at the New Evangelicals on people's stories. Like, what what drives you to do what you do now? So, why don't you kind of give us some of your backstory? How did you grow up? Um, how did you get into your, your line of work? And what do you do? Well, uh, I, I'm a transplanted Californian, so I live in Boston now, but um, <laughs> I'm Japanese-American, mm. uh, grew up in not a Christian. Uh, mm. My mom was kind of nominally, or is nominally Buddhist, and, and my dad being an atheist agnostic, and so those are kind of the primary influences on me when I was growing up to high school, when um, three friends uh, who were Christians introduced me to Jesus, and so different things going on in my life. Um, uh, prompted me to ask a lot of questions. And so I, I felt like, oh, I should look at atheism, Buddhism, and Christianity in much yeah, more depth. Yeah. And so I so I did eventually found that I really like Jesus and um, felt like if God is like Jesus, then I, I, I hope I hope that's true, right? Mm-hmm. I, I hope there's a God that's like Jesus. Yeah. And um so on a spring break uh, trip down to uh, the California-Mexico border, where I thought we were going to build houses, but we, we actually um, played with kids, I uh, committed my life to Jesus. And that was my junior year of high school. It was, it was a up and down you know, road from that point. But I, I again, really liked Jesus and um, uh, went to um, college at Stanford, um, graduated in 94, 
uh, worked at Intel Corporation mm -hmm. while I lived in East Palo Alto and yeah. being mentored by Jose and Jennifer Espinosa and serving Mexican immigrant families in the Spanish speaking Bible study that they had, which was really, really meaningful to me. Yeah. Um, I, I then got married in 99, moved out to Boston. Uh, we live in a, my wife and I live in a Christian intentional community. Uh, our neighborhood is mostly, or it's pan African American. I serve as an elder at my church, Neighborhood Church of Dorchester, and uh, I did campus ministry for over a decade formally with, with InterVarsity, and then in that process got exposed to early church thought and really loved the healing atonement and restorative justice themes that I was seeing. And so I decided to transition to like curriculum development and coaching, uh, which I've done since 2014. And I've started the Anastasis Center for Christian Education and Ministry. So there's a small team of us that work on uh, things related to healing atonement and Christian restorative justice. Okay, very cool. Um, we're going to get into um, having you kind of unpack healing atonement and restorative justice. But really quick, you mentioned not a church, but a Christian intentional community. Um, is there a difference there? Yes. So okay. It, it, what I'm referring to is a, basically my household. And in the year 2000, we bought this triple-decker house that it built in the 30s, originally for lower-income Irish folks in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And uh, it went, the neighborhood, you know, um, went through its changes and transitions. And Boston's history is very fascinating and sad when it comes yeah. to racial segregation and stuff. So, um but essentially, um, we had a, a good friend, African-American, um, who my wife and, and her, uh, her name is Tisha, uh, had a friendship and, and ministry partnership for, for years. And so we would wanted to buy a house in the neighborhood. And um, so we did and um, had a vision to do um, Christian life. Uh, and so intentional Christian community means practically, um, I mean, it might mean different things for different folks, but for us, it, it meant that um, we, we tried to do life together. We, we leave um, our floors, you know, it's a triple decker, but we, we can hang out on each other's floors. And uh, we, we, go, we went to different churches, uh, folks still do, um, but we were trying to be a blessing to our neighborhood and um, meet with kids and families, get to know one another's needs, um, share resources as the opportunities came and made sense. And um, now, uh, over the last few years, uh, some, some of my housemates and former housemates have been part of a, kind of a housing justice initiative where we're trying to leverage our resources towards helping black and brown families, especially get into home ownership because, mm. you know, you live on the coast and it's just really uh, expensive. <laughs> the price of real estate is skyrocketing yeah. and, yeah. and folks are getting displaced and, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and not just displaced, but <clears throat> um, really uprooted and, and not able to afford being close to their aging parents, you know, for instance. And, yeah. and, <clears throat> and so it's concerning on a number of levels. So, so uh, folks moved out, um, started their own households uh, with an extra room or two or an extra floor, and and then 
the third generation um, it, of folks doing that is now um, underway and we're really excited about it. And so that's for us, that's what Christian intentional community has meant. Man, I feel like that could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself. And I got to say, I, I love that. I've even, my wife and I have very lightly thrown around similar concepts of like, why why do we have to live like only this way? And isn't life done better in community? Obviously, I'm sure you know better than I that it can be messy at times and difficult and boundaries can get crossed. And how do you work through that? But there's something beautiful, I think, about that concept. I think it's very attractive to a lot of people of, yeah, like I don't want to live <laughs> alone. <laughs> I need people in my life, and right. and Sunday morning gatherings are just not enough. Nor do they allow for for, for the um, intimacy, that emotional and and and, and oh, dare I say spiritual intimacy that that yep. living in close quarters with people can can really offer. So I love that. I think that that's really beautiful. And again, maybe we'll have you back on and, and dig into that because there's so much there. Um, I love you. But one of the main reasons I asked you on in the beginning is because I think I found you on Instagram. And I think you said something or someone told me about something you said regarding atonement and you have a, is it a class or a book, Atonement 101? It's a series of materials on my website. And okay. so it's just a, a way to group that together for, for people who are just getting started or wanting to be introduced to healing atonement. Great. Why don't we start with that? Because I'll, I'll tell you right now, as someone who grew up in predominantly white evangelical spaces that, that lean reformed, um, you know, I was taught that the atonement, it wasn't even called that really. It was just called, you know, this is the gospel. Jesus yeah. died because God is angry at sinners. And instead of God pouring out his wrath on me, he poured it out on Jesus. If I pray this prayer, usually goes to Romans, you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I will be forgiven of those sins and God's wrath will pass from me to Jesus. I will no longer burn in hell forever and I will one day float up to the sky right where heaven is. I mean, that is a very common, I would say somewhat accurate version, maybe blunt, but it's there of what we were taught, you know, the gospel is and anything that isn't that is no longer the gospel. And I'm riffing off of the, this is like the Jeff Durbin types, the James White types, the apology radio types, you know, they're very big on this. Yep. Obviously, as I've as I've been learning and growing, um, PSA as it's called, right? Penal substitutionary atonement theory is one theory. Some argue the newest theory, but it's one theory um, of of how we of how Christians have have seen the work of the cross and of Jesus. And right. so, I want to hand it over to you. Um, what is healing atonement? Is it is it like another atonement theory? Is it different than that? Break that down for us. Sure. Well, it's the earliest atonement explanation that the early church gave. And, and you're right, penal substitution is the newest. It didn't exist before John Calvin and probably should be discarded uh, because it's damaging. Hmm. And, and so healing atonement, uh, I think the simplest way to think about it is shifting from a Western legal courtroom setting mm-hmm. into, into a medical kind of um, almost hospital paradigm Ooh. where you know, there all the all the things that worry us about, like, okay, what is the wrath of God, and how do I interact with God? What does He feel towards me? Like, what what is the nature of His commandments? All of that, like, what happens if I don't do them? <laughs> like the right. um, and and what is Jesus doing at His death? Like, how does that fit into? Like, you shift from a, a Western courtroom metaphor to uh, a medical surgical uh, framework. And so, you know, in the Western courtroom setting, 
God is a judge. He has a law. You broke it. So he's going to punish you. And Jesus steps in right. and, and takes the punishment instead. And so it's a penal uh, paradigm because someone needs to bear the penalty. And Jesus is the substitute in that sense because right. uh, he substitutes himself in for us. Like we should bear the penalty, but right. he did it instead. So also in called a, God's justice, correct? Like the justice of God has to be satisfied. The retributive justice of God needs to be satisfied. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, I make the argument that God's justice is restorative and not mm. retributive. Mm. But it, and that fits with a medical framework. And so in the medical framework, God is a, a doctor. He's a surgeon, in fact, and he's dealing with a, a patient population that doesn't want to cooperate with him. <laughs> <laughs> so the COVID pandemic is pretty apropos if you want to think about it that way but the <clears throat> but as but essentially so then he calls together a focus group their their name is israel and then mm. and then they become at least partially invested in receiving uh, a pretty demanding health regimen those are god's commandments and they're for our health israel receives them somewhat but then get they get tripped up because they're their human nature is still sickened or corrupted and uh, self-centered. And so, you know, you know they, but they, they do a lot. I mean, they receive a lot of health by following a lot of the commandments, not all, but all of them. And Christians ought to be thankful for biblical Judaism and the Jewish community because of that, uh, not just contemptuous. Hmm. And, uh, and then they document the disease, they analyze human nature. You know, they say things like the human heart needs to be circumcised. Something needs to be surgically removed from human nature in order for us to be healed, to be cured. Uh, you know, so create in me a clean heart, says clean King David in, in Psalm 51, because he's realizing, like, I don't have anything else to blame. Like, we live in a good environment. The land, this is a garden land. We, you know, we, we have good laws. It doesn't get any better than this. And so why do we keep screwing up? It's human nature. The problem is internal. And, and then Jesus comes along because he fully receives the, the, the treatment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so he shared in our fallen humanity that we might share in his healed humanity. Mm -hmm. That's the, the idea. And so there still is a wrath of God, but it's the wrath of a surgeon that is against the cancer in your body. And the more the surgeon cares about you and even loves you, the more she will hate the cancer, right? right. And, and God is that way. And so we don't have to wave that away or, or, but at the same time, the wrath of God is not directed at our personhood. It's directed at something else that's in us, that's stopping us from becoming the people that God always wanted. And so Jesus executes the wrath of God against the corruption of sin in his nature. Hmm. And then through his you know, life and death, uh, fights every temptation, right? And he never gives in. At his death, he kills the thing that's been killing us. And in his resurrection, he raises his human nature new, clean, healed, perfected, and he gives us a God-soaked, God-drenched humanity by his spirit. That is healing atonement. And what, I, what I'm calling medical substitution, because mm -hmm. Jesus substitutes himself in for us in a medical sense, not in a penal sense. Mm. 
okay, my mind is, you know, this is maybe the first time I've ever heard it put like that ever in my entire life. So my mind obviously is trying to soak in what it can from that first yep. pass of hearing, um, for lack of a, of a better term, the gospel account, right, uh, talked about in this, this kind of language and in this framework of, Yes, I have a cancer inside of me, so to speak, right? And um, and it is hostile to the way that God has created things to be. And and you know, Tim Mackey, the Bible Project. I'm a big fan of their work, and he made the comment that you know God is on a mission to get the hell out of out, out of His good earth. You know th- that kind right. of idea that that God wants to restore things to how they ought to be for the sake of of His creation and and His partnership with humanity. So I think it sounds like you're kind of hitting along those lines of like. Like, yes, of course sin is evil. Of course we want sin gone, you know, but but the wrath of God is aimed at the sin, not at the creation that, 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 that he's called good. Am I thinking along the right lines here? Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, because the, the in a medical paradigm, you know, a doctor can differentiate between the corruption of sin in us, right. like the disease, right. and right. you as a person. And so God loves you and, and, and you know, it wants to... Re- your partnership in removing the sinfulness right in a in a courtroom framework in a western legal courtroom framework the, a judge can't really differentiate between um you as a person and something in you that is contributing to the way you're behaving mm-hmm. or the, the evil that we do or the selfishness that we that we uh, commit and so so it's it's way harder and and so i think that's why there's such confusion in the legal courtroom framework of, well, what's God's disposition? How is God good? Mm -hmm. Uh, Does he, does he care more about the next world than he cares about this one? Because he sure doesn't seem like, like he's making himself feel better, uh, but he's not necessarily fixing the problem of human evil. See, and so in the medical framework, no, God wants to our partnership to undo all of human evil at its source, which is now unfortunately in us. Hmm. And so it's, and so God cares about this world in order to care about the next world. God uh, has no limit on, well, who, who does he want Jesus? Who is he offering Jesus to Hmm. Uh, right in the legal paradigm? You have all these thorny questions about limited versus unlimited atonement. And if Jesus died for everybody, then, right. Then, and you understand that as he absorbed the retributive justice of God to God's satisfaction, then there can no longer be any wrath of God. And so there can't be any hell. And then people get stuck. (laughs) And, and so people are like, Oh, so then Jesus must not have died for everybody. He must have died only for some right and and then you get into really hairy questions of like right. okay so does god love some people more than others and did he create throwaway people um right. yeah there's i a- mean that that was one of the reasons why i i eventually had to face my calvinistic upbringing which teaches you know tulip theology in, in today's circles right and limited yep. atonement is one of them uh and also they appeal to romans 9 right who are you oh man god makes some vessels for wrath and some for you know not wrath i guess or destruction and i've always interpreted the or was taught to interpret those verses in that framework you know this is this is we're talking about heaven and hell wrath destruction goodness mercy um you know and eventually i i, I had to come to face i i had to come to grips with it and say, is this what the Bible 
is 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 this the only way to see these verses? And this is, is this the only way that that you know um, that is this who God is essentially? You know, is this who God is? He's picking some arbitrarily before the foundations of the world to burn in hell forever. Like my right. brother who who isn't a Christian, I guess he was predestined to burn forever. But the God that I worship on Sunday loves me unconditionally. Like, how does that work? So I think a lot of people who are listening have grown up in similar circles, maybe not as explicit, but they've also wrestled with. Oh yeah, like God loves all people, but also most of humanity is burning in hell forever. How does that work? And so it sounds like this healing atonement, you know, theology might offer a different way forward. That's absolutely right. And the oh gosh, there's there's just so many uh, things to to correct about the way we grew up because I had similar influences. Yeah, and so. Whether it's like, oh, Romans 9 through 11 is not talking about eternity. It's talking about actual points in history that are not universalizable, right? That yeah. We shouldn't generalize what happened to Pharaoh and the hardness of heart or the, that generation of Jewish leadership at the time of Jesus and their hardness of heart. But there's a symmetry between them, Gentiles, Jews on the one hand, leading to the first exodus of Israel out of bondage, and then the second exodus of Jesus out of the bondage to sin and death. Yeah. So, so the point there that Paul is making is, is not God just plays with people's eternal destinies. It, it's no, he always works in history to show more mercy and he's working with people because they harden their hearts. And so he works with those decisions in order to bring about a greater deliverance that people are invited back into on the other side, mm. right? And so that's why in the, the first Exodus from Egypt, there is the mixed multitude in Exodus 12, I believe it's 36 or 38, that joins Israel on the other side. There's all these not, not biologically descended people uh, from Abraham and Sarah, right? They, they just, they're like, that Pharaoh's crazy. I'm, I'm out of here. Right. So, <laughs> right. I'm joining right. this community because right. God looks awesome. Mm. And, and then on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul is hoping for Jews and Gentiles to enter that community, the body of Christ, because, because the hardening is off. And he wants, and he wants both Jews and Gentiles to come to Jesus. Yeah. If Paul believed that the hardening of heart applied to like all Jews or something like that, then he wouldn't go be going around as a uh, basically a missionary, right? And and saying I want everybody to know Jesus, right? So, so yeah, it, Romans nine through eleven is not about eternity; it's about history. It's it's about who is being God's missional partners right now in yes. the world. Yeah, and yeah. and so there's once we get that straightened out, that helps. Um, and and then there's then questions of well what about all the people who didn't seem to, who seemed to have died without knowing Jesus yeah and you know I think we have to answer those questions but I, I think C.S. Lewis does a great job uh in the last battle and the great divorce of well maybe it's something like when people meet Jesus face to face for the first time uh it, something about all of their heart level choices you know now will be summed up or or completed when they meet Jesus. And so why do we think that? Well, because when when Jesus went to the dead it, in 1 Peter 3 and 4, 
he gave people a choice. Mm. And, you know, because everyone who died before Jesus died, what were they doing? Right. I mean, God, God didn't just consign people to hell because they were born at the wrong time in history. They were, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Right. And, you know, those kinds of questions are the questions that, that we've, we've heard the answers from our evangelical heritage give, and right. we found the answers lacking. And then when we say that, we're told, oh, you're just, you're, you're outside of the faith. You're just a heretic. And it's like, well, I, we can't be the only people on the planet in history to have thought about this, right? Like, I'm not going to give ourselves that much credit. Like, somehow this is the this is the question that no other theologian has ever thought about outside of a Western evangelical framework where, where the answer is, well, do we have to go send more missionaries out there? Because who knows, right? Right. Hmm. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I get it. Sin is serious. It's, it's addictive also. And so the longer we're in it, the harder it is to get out of it. So yeah, we want people to know Jesus sooner rather than later, yeah. but that, that doesn't mean like, uh, that everything depends on us or that, uh, that, that, you know, especially in these outer cases of like people who died before Jesus died or right. people who didn't get the chance to know Jesus during this life. Like, well, what, what's going to happen to them? Well, they're going to face Jesus too. And, and so, yeah, the early church and all the way up to, I mean, I, again, I think Luther and Calvin um, believed that on, on Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, you know, the, there's this question, a lot of Protestants are asking like, what was Jesus doing on Saturday? Like, was right. he like resting? Just hanging out? <laughs> so, <you know? laughs> and so the, but the the older churches firmly believed on the basis of First Peter three and four and a whole bunch of other things that <clears throat> no Jesus went to the realm of the dead and presented himself to them. Mm. Of course, he wasn't doing nothing, right? Um, right. And, yeah. and 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 so uh, the the picture on my website, my organization's website, is mm. called Anastasis. It's called resurrection in Greek and, or some people call it the harrowing of hell in, or Hades in English, because it depicts Jesus breaking down the doors of, of death of mm. Hades. And, you know, like underneath the doors, there's all these broken locks and, and, and also the figure, the figure of the devil, like he's just trapped under the doors yes. and he's dragging Adam and Eve up by the wrists from their tombs. Mm. And the, the idea is he he's giving life, First, like because he is life, he gives life to where people wherever he goes, and so, mm. uh, so you know, we don't know did everybody choose him or or not. I don't know, but that's that's what the ancient churches believed until you you get to the some traditions in the Reformation that says um, no, that didn't happen, or he if he if it did happen, then no one actually like believed in Jesus or received him, Jesus went, just went down there to mock people. I mean that, so it, it, it can get a little bizarre, but that, that's <laughs> yeah. not what Christians believed uh, mm. happened. Mm. This was a moment of victory. And so applying that logic then to, you know, uh, Jesus return, yeah. Uh, then yeah, all these other people who never got a chance to really have a clear understanding of Jesus or only had sucky Christian friends, <laughs> then, yeah. you know, they'll say, oh, it was you. It was you. 
And yeah, all the goodness, the beauty, the justice, the love, the belonging that I've longed for, it's actually embodied in you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, or there could be people who say, I, I suppose, um, you know, I, I didn't really want you. I just wanted alcohol, you know, or something, something else. I've, I've conditioned myself to want other things. Mm. And, um, and Jesus will, it is basically saying, no, I'm the healing of your humanity. Mm. I've, I've purified human nature. What you're wanting is part of the disease. Mm. And, and that's a, but that's a different dynamic than um, people who want to be with Jesus, but Jesus says no, right? Like right. That's, that's the penal substitutionary paradigm with retributive justice. Like yes, uh, people yes. want out of the torture chamber and but God wants to keep him in there because he's not yet satisfied and will never be satisfied with right. being offended. I mean, and yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to catch you off there. Well, and and just the flip side being what C.S. Lewis said: No, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. It's it's that Jesus loves people, but it it will feel like something like a, uh, a an addiction treatment center where 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 people still want your participation in your own healing but you don't want to give it. And so it's like, no, I want to stay in my room. <laughs> right. I don't like this kind of love. Right. You know, ex- exactly. Um, you know, I- I'm still working out my own um, thoughts and beliefs on-, on how I view the afterlife now, especially being exposed to, you know, universal reconciliation and, um, yep. you know, um, uh, annihilationism, just different ways of-, of seeing what the afterlife could or couldn't be. Um, and and I'm more and more convinced, and even before I had these, these real questions, I always found the idea of God punishing someone for a trillion years, you know, just like, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that I'm not God, as some people like like like, like to say, right? How, who are you, oh man? But I mean, if right. we are made in the image of God, I would imagine that God has a higher empathy and love and and even standard, right, than me. And I think, I mean, even after a trillion years, aren't we just torturing Hitler at that point? You know, like don't get me wrong. You know, like Hitler needs to be punished. I understand that, right, for sure. For what right. if we're, if we're going to take one of the worst people in the human history, and especially of our lifetime and our generation, so to speak, you know. I, I, after a trillion years, is, is it just kind of sadistic? You know, honestly, can we ask those questions without right. without the, the rebuttal being, you, you, you're just, you're not thinking how God thinks. That's just, you're not, your ways are not God's ways. It's like that, that right. does not answer the question for me. It just doesn't. Right. It's it just, it tries to end the conversation by saying God is infinite and therefore how he feels about it is infinite. And, and then, yeah. you know, like he, he has to give an infinite retribution. Um, yeah. And, and, if that's what's going on, then it's really troubling. I mean, and certainly it's plausible, right? I mean, in the afterlife, we're all, we're, a lot of us are just doing our best with the information that we have to make guesses about, about how things are going to work out. We have to understand that. You know, no one's been there and come back, you know, scientifically <laughs> proven, here's how it works. So certainly ECT, as it's called, eternal conscious torment, is a, it is can be an option. But my goodness, like if it is, I'm not sure what kind of God is out there. It kind of concerns me a little bit, frankly. Um, Mother's Day is coming, and if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with Drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, far, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. 
Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Right. So uh, let's talk a little bit now. Let's get a little more practical, right? So, so yeah. you you just presented to a lot of listeners, probably for the first time, including myself, healing atonement. Uh, you, your your argument is that this is what some of the earliest known church fathers held, um, and you really painted a beautiful picture that I think helps to make sense of of the the evilness that 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 sin is, right? So you're you're, you're not diminishing that sin is a thing, and people enact that and it invades our system and individuals, but also this God wants to heal people from that, not right. not ultimately punish them forever and ever for being bad people, right? I right. like that, but let's talk about now some of the implications of this. On a practical level, right, how does this kind of theology of atonement impact how, how maybe you live day to day or how it can change how Christians in America or around the world live day to day? That's, that's a great question. Um, let me let me illustrate that first, and then I'll, sure. I'll talk about the, the gist of it. You know, Marvel movies are a great illustration of restorative justice and, and not retributive justice. <laughs> that is true. You know, so uh, I won't spoil the new Spider-Man for, Perfect. for your viewers. But it was but, great. <laughs> but it was great, and there's such restorative justice themes. And, and or is. the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, you know, yeah. about when Bucky um, is told by Falcon, like, Hey, just go back and offer yourself to be helpful. Like you're, you're not, you're not there because of you. And this is, this is not just like your feelings of guilt that you just want to get rid of. You, you're looking at what is the harm that you've done and right. asking the question, what, what, do, how can I help or how can I participate in the healing uh, from that harm? Right. And that's the, that's the basic contrast between retributive mm. and restorative justice. Retributive justice is where it, it's offender centric, right? And so if I commit a crime, then that crime should be done to me in some proportional way, or, or I should be made to suffer some kind of pain proportionally to what I've done. Right. That's retributive justice. And then restorative justice is uh, victim centric. It's asking what does the victim need in order to move on or to heal or to repair from that? And then how can the offender, if the offender is willing and if the uh, victim is willing, uh, how can the offender help in that process? And it, it's not always that there's like neat and tidy solutions, but, right. but sometimes I just want to point out, like sometimes what the offender is called to do is actually more emotionally challenging and demanding under restorative justice because because maybe they want to avoid the situation. I mean, maybe they would actually prefer, like, just lock me up. I, mm. I don't want to have to face that. And so yeah. uh, th there's lots of examples uh, on my website about that. But but essentially, in, in medical substitutionary atonement or healing atonement, mm. God's justice is restorative. And he calls upon us to, calls us to participate in the restoration of our human nature and the the harm that we've done in relationship. And so neuroscience is a really great example of that. And, mm -hmm. and maybe a small sliver or kind of a microcosm that illustrates the dynamic. If I watch porn, take crack, or play excessive video games, the same neural pathways in my brain are stimulated and, and become a little more hardwired so that those things become more attractive tomorrow. 
right? And that's how addictions form. And, and so it, you know, there's a very real sense that I am, am damaging my own human nature. Mm. And so what does God call me to do? Well, to, to make healthy choices, right? Like to be present, to be in reality, to, to engage people really. Uh, and so uh, there's a sense of joy that comes in real relationship in, in being known and, and not in these fantasy activities mm-hmm. because, you know, porn, drugs, and video games are all fantasy activities and they, uh, you know, stimulate the brain towards that. So that's the only way to be healed from those choices. So our, our choices shape our neural pathways. They shape our choices, shape our own desires. And as we are learning, our choices shape our own humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, Biblically, that's, that's true, right? Like this is what uh, human beings have been. We're supposed to do all the time. We're supposed to eat from the tree of life to, to go deeper into the life of God in, in a Jewish sense, uh, you know, there's like Proverbs eight and other places, write God's law on your heart, like internalize these things. It's we're human beings and human becomings. And that's that developmental view of who we are as human beings is really important. And so that meshes really well with restorative justice, because if we go off the track God is always wanting us to call, come back, inviting us to come back. His love is always there for us. His strength and power is always there for us to do that. Mm. Um, but it is directional. And so it, if we, you know, again, if we don't want to, then there, the, that's another story. Right, but the, right. the direction of growth is, <clears throat> is participate in your own healing and in the healing of others. So, uh, you know, one example of that, again, is Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise your hearts, O Israel. What that means is surgically, by internalizing the commands of God, you're going to be surgically cutting off something in your human nature that needs to be cut off, and you're doing it in partnership with God. So Mm -hmm. you're, you're repairing the harm that you've done to human nature, and also the, the harm that you didn't personally do, but you've inherited it because we're all victims of the the corruption of our first parents or however we understand that. So the, Hmm. there's the harm that we do to ourselves. And then there's, for example, criminal justice reform. I mean, the, on an institutional level, the reason why we have mass incarceration and a whole bunch of uh, problems with our criminal justice system racial and otherwise, is because a lot of people in the past have believed that God's justice is retributive and not restorative. And right. so we don't, we don't structure the consequences in a way that benefits the community that offenders have, have really harmed. So yeah, we care about that, but the, the answer is not to further destroy families and communities. Right. <clears throat> It's to structure consequences in a way that there can be maximum um, relief and and healing. So, have yeah. you ever seen the the show uh, Sixty Days In? No, I have not. 
It's a Tell show on A and E. It's a it's like a re, it's not it's not scripted, but it's like a docu series kind of idea. And the premise is they take people from normal civilian life and throw them in, in a real prison for sixty days, like a real prison. They're locked up, they're arrested, and their job is to kind of find out how drugs are getting in or to make you know friends with with, with the inmates, etc. Uh, there's like eight seasons of it, and every time. Almost every time, the people who go in become more like the prison system and become more like the culture that's there instead of them changing the culture, right? They become, yep. and they, they say how like they, they're not themselves and they feel more prone to violence and they're more depressed and more anxious. And I think it's a real testament to um, our mass incarceration system that, like you said, really is focused on punishing and not restoring. And in that effort, you end up creating more and more repeat offenders, especially when you look at, at, at how our parole system works in the in, in America and, and, and our felon system works, right? If you have a felon on your record, half the jobs that you try and apply for won't even hire you, right? So it's really becomes a system that 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 makes it very difficult to escape from. And then we celebrate the, the lucky few who were able to break that cycle and call it a success when in reality, right. we're doing so much harm. Exactly. Hmm. As opposed to, and other countries, you know, have gone restorative justice routes, uh, including for Scandinavian countries or, or Germany. And, and uh, they see lower recidivism rates. They, they treat, um, you know, inmates, they haven't abolished prisons and i'm not sure what i think about that but the 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 issue is is what happens in the the whole system as they progress through it right and they're treated humanely and um they're possibly you know encouraged to to meet with the victims that they they have uh done harm to and i i believe i read something a few years ago that said sweden has um has been so successful using restorative justice um, as a paradigm that they've converted prisons into condominiums. <laughs> I mean, wow. wouldn't that be a good problem to have for us? Right, right. Um, and and right. so, you know, it, this is not the the only thing that I think we should do. There's there's a lot of institutional changes that I, I would be in favor of, but it's a really important one. Yeah, and, I would agree with you it, on that, you know. And I think for the for the record, I think you would agree with me. Obviously there there are humans in history and who live among us who I think have serious um I hate to say it, but really evil inside of them and have done much harm. I mean, we're talking about about the the the, the Ted Bundys of the world, right, so to speak. People right. who are like, "Okay, we we do have to have a place where where, where they can go to not harm yeah. anyone else," right? We understand that. But when we're talking about mass incarceration, we know the majority of people in prison are nonviolent offenders, you right. know, and and uh, and there's a lot of other layers that that really um contribute to the fact that I think this this stat and tell me if I'm wrong, you would know more than I, but I think that the US for the western world Incarcerates the most people out of any out of any country uh, that 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 we kind of compete with. That's right. More than Iran, China, and, and Russia put together, or something wow. like that. I, I forget the most recent stats, but that is uh, disturbingly true. And and again, I, I think it's because there is, you know, the the flip side of retribution is meritocracy or meritocratic justice. And, and so we believe that God is meritocratic, like it, well, uh, it, it's just, we also believe, or, you know, in a, you know, substitutionary sense that no one merits God's favor, but all of this stacks up to the idea that, 
um, the United States is also a meritocracy. And so if you do manage to avoid getting in trouble with the police, <laughs> living right, and think it's just your individual merit. And right, so, right, right. you know, all of, all of the, uh, I, I th- the theology and the social political ideology kind of work together. And, and um, I think this is why, I mean, it sounds weird, but I think this is why um, Southern states uh, refuse the Medicare expansion under the Affordable Care Act, yeah, because yeah. it's like, well, your health is, shouldn't be my, you know, the public's yeah. business. And, and um, it, it's, it's like an issue of individual merit, like your health, even though we know that's not true. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that happen to us genetically, totally. epigenetically in the womb and early childhood experiences. The food, not to the food we eat. The food we eat. <laughs> huge, huge. <laughs> yep. And yet we want to blame the victims all the time. Yeah, um, man, there's so many things that you hit on that I want to maybe unpack but while we have the time. One thing I'm realizing is how much of this also is from you know, the hyper-individualistic mind of the American, which even in Western countries is kind of yes. far off the scales. I'm not sure if you know uh, who Randy Richards is. He wrote the book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. Great book. Um, um, and also he wrote the book, Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. And his point is just to say that, um, especially in America, in the West in general, but highly in America, we are such, we read things so hyper-individually that A, that, that's not how the Bible was written, number one. It was written in a whole different cultural moment context, but also how a lot of this hyper-individualism really contributes to, well, that guy's health isn't my problem, or during a pandemic, oh, well, just if you don't want to be exposed, then just stay in your home, you know, or I don't have to wear a mask, it's not my problem, how that kind of mentality really contributes to a lot of the the problems and a lot of like kind of the, the divisions that we're seeing where most of the world looks at us and goes, you guys are fighting about wearing masks, like I, especially I know like in, in countries like China through, you know, Etc. Mask wearing has been a thing way before the pandemic for for various reasons, but it just right. kind of proves the point. I think that you know our hyper individualism does not help us in this arena. It really harms us. It does. It it does. I think there 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 are definite definite spiritual and church history related roots to to this. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a weird collectivism as well. You know that that complements it. The United States is a Christian nation, and that myth. But uh, that's but a good point. I th- I think you know what it <laughs> often it's put in service of capitalism and individualism. Yeah, and so I think it comes out of um, I mean different streams, but just to name a, a couple, Calvin thought that, and the reformers in general thought that um, you proved your Christian life through your vocation and even secular job. And they were reacting to the Catholic church, elevating the priesthood and all of that. So like Catholics call that a calling. And so the Protestant reformers say, well, your calling is actually anything like whatever you're doing, you're a baker, shoemaker, farmer, whatever. And, and somewhere down the line, I mean, mixed in with um, the, the Calvinist, teaching on uh, usury or interest rate lending, which uh, debt is also tied in with penal substitutionary theology, because you could think of punishment as having to pay a debt, right? And so 
uh, and Jesus paid our debt. There's that language. And, you know, that, that is understood in a different way in the healing paradigm than in the penal paradigm. But, mm. but essentially all that kind of s- starts to stack up as like, well, what's your individual um, standing before God and, and your debt that you need to pay. And, and then also <clears throat> um, there's a bunch of uniquely American aspects of uh, getting away from the East coast and going to the frontier in order to be an individual, right? That rugged individualism, even though the federal government is paying billions of dollars to uh, fight native Americans in order to claim those lands. Uh, So, so we, we tell ourselves these, these myths that reinforce individualism and we don't actually own the truth of things. Um, that is, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but that is an astute point because a good example and another way to frame this right for our audience is is how often have we been told by conservative politicians, you know, um, we don't socialism is bad, socialism is evil. That's why we can't have affordable health care or or a single uh, you know taxpayer health plan. Um, but that same government, right? We think about about 2008 with George W. Bush had no problem bailing out large mega corporations. You know, a form, not necessarily directly socialism, but a form of you know a socialist idea of the government will support this thing to keep going um, and we and that still happens that is nothing new you know our government favors um, those kinds of, there's a reason why Amazon gets away with paying nothing in federal taxes every year as a corporation right and the reason is right. because we get to subsidize that as taxpayers but that right. in their mind isn't isn't socialism or isn't evil but once you start asking for hey how can we have 30 percent of the world's wealth in the world eight percent of the world's population we can't get affordable health care uh, oh Whoa, 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 you socialist, you socialist. It's like, okay, <laughs> convenient. It's a very convenient, you know, um, trick really of, of, of we're going to pull that card when it benefits us and we're going to hide it when, 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 when it disparages you kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, gosh, to, to keep bringing atonement back into this, please, if God's justice is restorative, then we have to ask like, well, what kinds of relationship relationships is he wanting to restore mm, and and good. it's the relationships of uh, that involve power for instance of boss and employee like what i mean that the, historically the church had a lot to say about fair wages and just prices and yes. you can't you can't just throw people out um yeah. you, you certainly can't evade you know tornado uh you know, building codes that, that will protect people. Right, and, right, right. and all of the, the, so all of that is an aspect of relationship that, that in the biblical story, God keeps go, trying to get back to. Uh, it's also our relationship with the land. Yes. Like, what is, what does that mean? What is soil health and how do we deal with climate change? I mean, there's all these, these things that could be flowing from, a really healthy reflection on we were made to live in a garden and to spread that garden over the, the world. Uh, and so what happened? How do we continue reflecting on that? Um, look at what we've done to the soil, to the air and the water. So, totally. so totally. that's the direction that this goes in. And, and so restorative justice is huge from a Christian standpoint. And I, I still am, am inspired, you know, to talk about this and write 
curriculum and materials and finding it in the early church and so on. But I think the, uh, the, the big problem in, in the United States is, uh, number, well, I'll just say two things. Number one, the Protestant reformers shifted from a restorative understanding of God's justice to a retributive one because they were regime builders. Calvin built a regime in, in Switzerland, in Geneva, Zurich, and I mean, uh, Zwingli and Zurich, oh, yeah. Luther, more or less in Germany, you know, Knox in Scotland, Henry VIII in England, and Gustavus Vos in Sweden. And so they were regime builders. And when you mm. build a regime, you have to explain to people why you can punish other people. And well, it's easy if you just say, well, God is retributive. And so I'm going to be retributive. Right. And, and then in the U.S., uh, there was a further distancing uh, uh, of, of people from church history. And, um, and so all these considerations about land and labor got lost. And, and so we favor plantation capitalism. So what you just described about Amazon being kind of a plantation now mm. is in the way that it treats people, the way that it just like doesn't care about all the the environmental impacts of right. everything it's doing. All of that is very similar to the plantation system that arose in the South yeah. in, in principle because we don't care about how we treat people or how we treat the land. Yeah. We uh, actually, the United States was a safe place for heretics to practice their heresy. They didn't, mm. they didn't want to be bothered by Christian ethics or church history. And, and so all of the restorative justice pieces that Christians had fought so hard uh, to maintain, you know, uh, one example would be uh, church tradition said, if, if someone who was indentured or enslaved became a Christian and got baptized, you set them free. That, that practice started really early. But mm. the colony of Virginia said, we're not going to do that. <laughs> That's right. We're, maybe we'll do it for white people, but not for African people. And, right. so, and, and so whiteness as a category trumped church history. It's a theological category now. And, and, and we have to understand it that way. Uh, and, and no longer was there this kind of insistence on... God has a relational vision. Jesus's new humanity is for all humanity. And so we are, are struggling to live into that and to put into practice. Uh, and, and instead, we have plantation capitalism. I mean, that, that whole thing, that whole monologue part that you just said, I mean, if I could just put that in a bottle and share it with everyone, you know, like all the time, that's what I would do because it is so brilliant. It's so on the money. Um, plantation capitalism. I never heard that term before, but man, it really sums up what so many of us are trying to talk about. And I think what I think the reason why, to be honest with you, so many of us uh, as as um, as former complicit white evangelicals, or maybe people who are still in the system trying to change it from the inside out, the reason why we're so frustrated is because 
it's not that it's not that we see forces out there and the church trying to stop those forces to, to protect the environment to try and think about about the workforce um, trying to fight for fair wages you know on, on a societal level but unfortunately we've experienced the church be on the other end and be the force that is stopping those things in American culture specifically right. the white evangelical church which I know is a very broad term but we I, I don't want to disparage the work of the mainline Protestants of even some Catholics you know certainly they there 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 is a tradition here, but the one that I've inherited, the one that I grew up in, that that really dominates, you know, the 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 cultural conversation, right? The eighty percent of white evangelicals who voted for Trump, so to speak, those right. people consistently seem to be on the wrong side of almost all of these issues. I mean, the environmental issue alone is is a huge deal. I just interviewed a couple of weeks, uh, months ago, a uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who wrote oh, the yeah. book Saving Us. You know, a a, a, a legend and a heavyweight who's a, a committed Jesus follower and also on the leading on the cutting edge and leading leading voice on on environmental change. And you know, it just seems like. Like, it just seems like, um, okay, let, let me zoom out for one minute. I'll get your thoughts on this. I, I interview a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people, all right, of all different topics. I, I just interviewed before you uh, Samuel Perry, who wrote the book, um, um, Taking America Back for God. You know, I interview people on all kinds, on all parts of, of the Christian world. Every conversation at some point gets back to white supremacy culture. It always does. And I think that we as as modern day evangelicals really are not aware of how widespread and how cancerous, even before the foundations of America were born, you know, but this idea, this concept of white supremacy, doctrine of discovery is infected still today in a lot of what we eat and breathe. It's in the air, so to speak. And I'm just realizing that more and more, the more people I talk to, whether I'm talking about Christian nationalism on a political level, or I'm talking to you about healing atonement, all roads lead back to and white supremacy, you know, and slavery. And and, and we have to recognize that. Like we we I cannot I can no longer be complicit in these systems that that refuse to acknowledge our very real you know, written about, have the receipts history of the white evangelical complicity in that system. It, it, it's frankly, it has to stop. End of rant. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. Absolutely. You got me going. And, and, you know, if if I can just uh, say that this is why I, I loved the early church when I started reading them. I was like, you can tie all of those things together. Yeah. We can... We do have a coherent, you know, way of thinking from Jesus out to all of these things. And, and it has to do with Jesus, with, with what we're calling atonement theology, mm. restorative justice. and But yeah, all of those things um, are touched upon. Um, and, and, and that's great because we want to be able to say that, yes, God is bigger than all these things. That's what gives me hope. That's also what gives me the vision to fight all the, all of that. Right, and, right. And, uh, and I'm not just being eclectic, right? right like th- this right. organically comes out right. of Christian faith. Like it's, it's really there. Right. And right. <clears throat> yes. It, you know, the particular application might, uh, might be a little ad- advanced. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know of many Christians who thought, you know, in previous centuries that they had to fight climate change, but right. you know, the the principles are still there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I love that. Um, you know, oh man, I feel like we could be here forever. It's already been an hour. I can't believe it. I mean, time just flies when you're talking about this stuff. Um, I, 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 I want to get some final thoughts on, on, on kind of putting a bow on this conversation. Um, yeah, there's again. We should talk offline about, about about having you back or even doing some work together. Uh, my community, I, I'm sure, would benefit from, from from your classes. I'm looking actually at your website. One of them is called uh, "A Long Repentance: Exploring Christian Mistakes About Race, Politics, and Justice in the United States." I mean, wow! If that's not a new evangelical, like sign me up. I don't know what is. So we'll talk about that offline to get maybe a little more connected. But you know, one of my my final questions is this, right? So. There's a lot of rhetoric in our current evangelical climate. If you talk about fair wages, environmentalism, um, healthcare, people just you know, oh, you're a Marxist, you're a socialist, and obviously, they're, they're, frankly, they're just ignorant. They they don't they're, they're they're reciting Sean Hannity, Charlie Kirk talking points that are rooted in white supremacy without even knowing it. And it's not sometimes I'm just like, okay, like whatever, call me whatever you want, you know, because I, I can't explain to you in a comment how wrong all of that is. And a lot of people that I work with, including myself, we, we, we want to resist, right, the, the temptation of becoming a fundamentalist all over again, right? I've come out of fundamentalism. I've come out of, of I'm absolutely certain on the truth of this and the whole world has to know this version kind of thing. And I'm realizing that, that the world is just bigger than me, thank God, and that I'm not God. How do we resist becoming fundamentalists all over again while holding firm to these, these for us, new, but for many people, ancient principles that are rooted in Christ and in the scriptures and in the church. I mean, these are biblical, Christian, gospel-centric things, right? Even though our current climate thinks of them as the enemy. It's it's, it's like an immune body. It's like an uh, an immune disorder, right? Like, like, like the body is attacking itself thinking you're the enemy. It's like, we're really not, I swear. Uh, we're not the enemy. This is rooted in the Bible. How do we go forward in holding both of those things in tension? Such a great question. I think, first of all, the, uh, the, the reason why uh, a lot of Christians on the right, not all, but um, on the political right, accuse uh, anyone interested in injustice as a secularist or a Marxist is because they don't want to recognize that these concerns actually originate in Christian faith, in the teaching of Jesus and the the, tra- the greatest traditions of the church. Hmm. And so they want to put it at a distance because it's an easier talking point. Yeah. Um, I would say in the U S you know, the, uh, that what it may depend, but a, a very helpful way for me to think through the question you asked is how to be appropriately firm, but yet um, not either, well, uh, at least from a policy standpoint, dogmatic, right? Like is, is to say, look, um, John Winthrop and Roger Williams had that debate, right? At the, at the founding of, um, Massachusetts Bay Colony and and Providence, uh, and so this is this is not the same as the sixteen nineteen project, but it was happening at around the same time. It's it's just a different debate that is still relevant. John Winthrop wanted a theocracy, mm. and the, and so did the Puritans in Boston. Roger Williams said, "We can't do that uh, because there's no such thing as Christians." Uh, I'm sorry, there's no such thing as a Christian nation. 
There's just Christians in a nation. Mm -hmm. And so we can have human rights without theocracy, which is exactly what he did in Providence. He was the first colonial abolitionist. Mm -hmm. He fought for the the rights of women, even uh, Jane Varens versus Joshua Varens. Um, he thought he could tell her where to worship because she was his wife. <laughs> talk, talk about it, a version of patriarchal headship. That was like, no, and, and, and she was like, no, I, I want to go worship at a different church and sued him. And she won in Providence because of her religious freedom, mm. her freedom of conscience. So, you know, Roger Williams is the father of the first amendment in, in that sense in, in the United States and the way he befriended native Americans and honored them and wanted to pay fair, you know, amounts for their land um, recognized that the King of England didn't have the right to give to them. And that John Winthrop was wrong when he said, God was giving us this land. No, like God already gave the land to native right. Americans. If, if we want to, share in that, then we have to relate to them and understand what would be fair. So, um, so, you know, many of those things, the, the, this question goes back to that debate, um, Mm. which I think is helpful for, for white evangelicals to understand, even though I'm Japanese American, I, a lot of my mentors were white evangelicals. I care deeply about that tradition, broadly mm. speaking, mm-hmm. and and feel like you know a lot of it is just co-opted by the louder people uh, yeah. who you know like the eighty-one percent who who basically are on the side of John Winthrop. Yeah, you know we yeah. want to we're afraid of outsiders. We we want to have this covenant, uh, a political covenant in our nation to guard against non-Christians and people who are different from us versus Roger Williams said, that's not the role of Christians in the public sphere. Mm. And we need to be tolerant. We need to invite and welcome others, you know, and he was drawing from a long lineage himself that goes back, that goes back to critiquing Augustine. (laughs) And so, yeah, uh, that's a whole nother story uh, about, (laughs) empire and Christianity. It's not that, you know, everything that Christians did before the Reformation was great. Um, Yeah, right. But there there are some things to really learn about what they did do that were positive. And um, as far as being Americans is concerned, I I think that Winthrop versus Williams uh, paradigm is really helpful. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, like I said, I mean, we could be here a lot longer. I can ask you a lot more questions. Um, we'll, we'll we'll have to get you back on the podcast at some point. Like I said, let's let's talk offline about about doing some more work together. I really appreciated you coming on and 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 just sharing so much wisdom and just food for thought. You know, I I think that one of the struggles living in our in our in our information information overload society is that. A lot of us can feel overwhelmed, right? Like, oh my gosh, I have to learn about decolonization and the political stuff, and then atonement theory, and what is the Bible, and how does the Greek work, and what's the cult? And you, know, you just you can just drown and just and, and, and there's so much to undo. But yeah. I think that one of the benefits of podcasts is that people can listen to it, and then they can turn it off, and then they can just meditate on what we talked about, and just sit and soak on it, and just think about it for a little bit. So I encourage you, audience out there, especially with healing atonement. 
before you go to Instagram, even if, even if it's to see me, which I appreciate, but you know, before you do that, uh, just sit on on this uh, healing atonement, you know, theory and and, and this way of seeing um, the restorative justice of God compared to what we were taught about their, um, you know, um, what, what's it called? Um, I'm blanking on it. Retributive justice of God. Um, so I recommend doing that, taking time. So that being said. Mako, where can people find you? Where where can they see? Are you on Instagram? You know, plug away. I am I am on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, my organization's website is uh, called uh, the Anastasis Center or www.anastasis. Did I get that right? Anastasiscenter.org. Yep. And there's a, a lot of material there. Um, your your audience probably has so many questions, uh, and I try to I try to take those questions seriously, write about them, and and so there's a a blog site connected to to the main site, and and they can probably find some pretty decent responses there. Um, I'd I'd be glad for anyone to reach out to me over email. That there's a form that folks could uh, fill out and connect with me through. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm sure we'll do it again. Tim, it's great to be with you. Thanks for reaching out to me. And I'm so glad to be acquainted. I, I look forward to whatever it is that yes. uh, that is in store. Likewise. Attention shoppers, we now have taste in the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread. That's right, an organic bread that's no longer a sedative for your taste buds. Dave's Killer Bread is on a mission to make the most of the loaf, to rid the world of GMOs, high fructose corn syrup, and artificial ingredients, and plant the seeds of good in all that they bake. Killer taste, killer texture, and always organic. Dave's Killer Bread. Bread amplified. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.